Today on Something You Should Know, your personality can actually predict how much musical ability you have. Then, a former FBI agent explains the real science of body language, and you will be surprised. The feet are actually the most uh, accurate. The face is the least accurate. For instance, young children, when they're asked to kiss a relative and they don't like that relative, their feet won't go anywhere near that relative. They'll bend at the waist to initiate the kiss. Also, the fascinating connection between how much food you see in your kitchen and how much you weigh. Plus, the lost art of creating great corporate taglines and why they're so important. A Diamond is Forever was written by a 28-year-old female copywriter in 1948. That line will never change. BMW latched upon the ultimate driving machine. And guess what? It's the only tagline in the automotive world that anyone recalls today. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. Do you play a musical instrument? There has been research that shows that people who play a musical instrument have better brain function than people who don't. But what determines how good you get at that musical instrument? A lot of people say practice, practice, practice is what determines it. But there may be more to it than that. Your personality has a lot to do with your ability to play music. Psychologists at the University of Cambridge tested people's musical ability and then linked their scores to their personality traits. And they discovered that aside from musical experience, the trait of openness was the next best predictor of musical skill. Openness is defined as being willing to try new experiences and new ways of thinking. Extroversion was also linked to musical ability. So a person who is more open and outgoing will typically have more musical ability than people who are closed and introverted. Interestingly, they found that the links between personality and performance on musical tasks were present even in people who did not play a musical instrument. This means there are individuals who have a potential for great musical talent, but are entirely unaware of it. And that is something you should know. You are constantly giving off signals and communicating without saying a word. And what's interesting is you're constantly reading other people's physical cues and signals without them saying a word. For example, you can sense it when you're talking with someone, whether they want you to keep talking to them or leave you alone, even though they don't say anything about it. You just sense it because you're reading those nonverbal signals. And what's even more fascinating is when you study this a little deeper, you can get really good at reading those signals. And here to teach you how is Joe Navarro. Joe is very experienced in this. He was a special agent for the FBI for 25 years, and he is author of the book, What Everybody is Saying. Hi, Joe. Welcome. So start with a brief explanation of what you did at the FBI all those years. I specialized in uh, counterintelligence work, and uh, I also was part of the Bureau's uh, behavioral uh, analysis program, which looked at human behavior. 
And about three or four years before I retired, I started publishing articles uh, for the FBI on the subject of nonverbal communications and uh, human behavior. And so how accurate is this reading of nonverbal communication? Because one of the criticisms I've heard from people who know about this is that you can't tell much from a single clue. That just because somebody crosses their arms doesn't mean they're being defensive. It could just mean they're cold, or it could just mean that's their natural posture for them. That you can't read too much into any of this. Well, there's nothing in uh, human behavior is 100%, but uh, there are some things which are extremely accurate. Um, you know, our, our bodies reflect what we think, what we feel, and, uh, and what we intend. And so uh, oftentimes, for instance, you'll see someone, uh, two people are talking, and then all of a sudden one of them will, one of their feet will rotate in, in, a, in the direction they want to go. And uh, it's an intention cue, and it's extremely accurate that says, hey, i got to go. So when you're trying to read someone's nonverbal clues, but they're also talking, does the talking help? Or does the talking make the nonverbal more fuzzy, uh, especially if what they're saying doesn't match the nonverbal? I mean, it, does talking help or does it hinder? Well, I think for most people, we look for the nonverbals to add to the verbal communications because nonverbals is the primary way we communicate. We have that, uh, done that for millions of years. So when somebody greets us and says, hey, how are you? Uh, we want to see the smile. We want to see the arching of the eyebrows as they say those words. That adds true sentiment to it. Because, you see, when it's absent, when, when for instance, these uh, body exclamations are missing, that's when we begin to sense, oh, this person really doesn't like me. But oftentimes people will, for example, put on a happy face, even though they don't feel particularly happy. They're trying to send out physical signals that they're happy when they're not. That's right. And that's why we have both a true smile and a false smile. A true smile pulls up towards the eyes. It's very difficult to fake. A a fake smile is the one that we often use socially, pulls towards the ears. And that one's uh, fairly easy to identify, or it's not full. Only half of the face smiles, and uh, and that's why it, it's it's hard to uh, smile at somebody when you're angry. How effective do you think it is if somebody studies body language and says, "Okay, well, I know if I do this, it it, it will mean that," and and then try to fake it? How effective is that? Well, you know, some people do try to fake the body language. Uh, for instance. Politicians will often give you what's called a politician's handshake, where they give you the hand and then they cover your hand with the other hand. That's to uh, demonstrate a closeness that probably doesn't belong there. It's artificial. And so we can use nonverbals. For instance, uh, patting somebody on the back over and over um, when we don't know them that well. We are, in, in essence, creating something that, uh, that isn't true, and so it doesn't make us feel right. It does seem somewhat that the ability to read other people's body language is, is human nature. I mean, I've never studied it, but if I meet somebody, I shake their hand, and I look at their face, and they're not smiling, I know something's wrong, and it's not because I'm an expert in body language, it's just that 
I have that sense. It, it seems like it's human nature. Oh, it's, it's absolutely uh, in our nature. For instance, the studies I've seen with babies just three and four days old, they will recognize a smiling face versus a scowling face. They'll smile. They'll mimic uh, that smile. And when you furrow your eyebrows at a baby, you can make them cry. They absolutely read your body language. In fact, their, uh, their pupils will dilate when, uh, when their mother comes into the room and will orient towards uh, the, the voice of their mother. What about some of the more common ones? I, I mentioned earlier, you know, about people who cross their arms, and that's often been said to mean that the person is closed off or they're being defensive. Those kinds of stereotypical body language things, are, is there truth to them? You know, look at people when they're around each other in a, in a home, and you'll notice that rarely do they cross their arms in front of each other. Now, do we do that more in public because it's more comfortable or the room's cold or there's a slight amount of insecurity? Most likely. Um, when we are upset with someone, most likely we'll cross our arms, but then we will tighten our hands uh, tightly on our uh, on our on arms, we'll um, you know we'll we'll grasp ourselves really tight, and that's a pretty good indication that things are bad. In general, do you think body language is more reliable than verbal language? In in the sense that if somebody says something, but their body language says something else, are you more likely to believe the body language or what someone says? Um, I would place greater emphasis on on the uh, on the body language because. Um, for instance, uh, our, our limbic brain, our more primitive brain, doesn't permit uh, certain things to take place, and so it's extremely accurate. So, for instance, if it, it won't allow you to get near a person when uh, when you find them distrustful or uh, suspicious. Um, we turn away from people we dislike. So it, they may say they like us, or we may say we like them, but our bodies will actually rotate away from them. I'll give you an example. People who are breaking up will rarely touch their feet together. So it doesn't matter what they say. The fact that they're, they, 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 they won't let their feet near each other is a good indicator that the relationship is over. From your experience, are there any behaviors, any signals that people give out that are slam dunk, oh, he's lying, or oh, she doesn't like me, or, or do you always have to put it in context? Well, you always have to put it in context. For instance, at the airport, you expect to see a lot of stress behavior. And it's because, you know, flights are canceled and, and people are, are just stressed. But uh, I'll give you an example of a fairly accurate one. Watch uh, people when they purse their lips. And, you know, they, the, the lips look like they're, they're, they're kissing somebody. They're, they're, they're pursing them. It usually means they're in disagreement or uh, they don't like what they heard you know, or what they're talking about. It's, it's extremely accurate because it mimics that same behavior that we see in children when they tell their parents that they don't like something, the food they're about to eat and so forth. I'm speaking with Joe Navarro. He was a special agent for the FBI for 25 years, and he is author of the book, What Everybody is Saying. So, Joe, are there any clues that people give off that are hard to fake? And there must be, because that's why, you know, poker players are all covered up with sunglasses and hats, because they give off those tells. But are there things in in regular conversation that you know 
you just can't fake it. You're going to do that. There's one that I started writing about in the literature, and, uh, and that is women, when they are uh, insecure or struggling with something or they feel threatened, they'll touch their neck dimple. That's that little area right below the Adam's apple. It's uh, also called the suprasternal notch. And they do it in real time. So they could be on the phone talking about the, the creep they just saw, and they'll put their hand over this area. Or as they walk into a room full of men and they feel insecure, they'll cover this area up. Or as I saw in a meeting in Lisbon, a woman was on the phone and she immediately covered this area up as her husband was uh, telling her he had just been in an accident. It's extremely accurate, and very few people uh, know what it means, and yet we see it all the time. Is body language pretty universal? I mean, could you go to China or Saudi Arabia and and read people as accurately as you do here, or is it pretty much culturally exclusive? There are cultural differences, but most behaviors that I concentrate on are universal, and those are the ones that deal with emotion. Smile is a smile around the world. A frown is a, a frown around the world. A surprise is a surprise around the world. And so um, these are uh, these are accurate and they're universal. Can we fake things like when you know when you go into a room and you, you don't feel very confident because you don't know anybody? Can you fake confidence and will people buy it? Can you fake being happy to some extent and people will buy it? Sure, but they're extremely um, draining on us. They will drain the person that's having to fake it. How many of us have been told by a spouse or a parent, uh, put on a party smile? don't look that way, change your face, uh, don't make faces, and so forth. So for a while we can, we, we can fake it, but uh, like I said, it's extremely uh, draining on us. Are there some general rules about body language that are worth knowing, or, or really everything is in context and individual in the situation and the person? Well, again, everything in context, but there are some general rules. For instance, um, we can divide a lot of body languages up into things that make us comfortable and we demonstrate comfort and uh, things that make us uh, uncomfortable. So uh, some comfort displays would be, for instance, a smile, a head tilt, exposing more of the front of the body instead of turning away. Discomfort displays would be tightening of the facial muscles, less smiling, a stiff neck, what I call ventral denial, where we start to turn away from the person or we put things in between us so uh, we have less exposure. Um, that's, uh, those are pretty e- easy rules, and we, do, we demonstrate those day in, day out, uh, in real time. What do you mean in real time? Nonverbals don't wait. We don't, you know, it's not like a conversation. I'll give you an example. I was at a store today, and the attendant was taking too long. And immediately, I, right at that moment, my, the muscles in my face started to tighten as I was thinking, why is this person, you know, taking so long? Um, they're in real time. Uh, and uh, and that's the beauty of nonverbals. When you know when we're talking about how we feel about something, it's demonstrated in real time. Right, right. And when you finally get up to the clerk, those things start to go away in real time. 
but it's an indication. And, and uh, as she looked at me, she could tell that I was irked by uh, how slow she was uh, doing her job. And, and we've done this for millions of years. We've communicated to each other uh, precisely how we feel. You know, after all, when a baby's born, it doesn't speak. The mother learns to read it. And what does the baby say? I'm either comfortable and happy or uncomfortable and uh, irritable. You say that the face is the least likely place to gauge a person's feelings, and yet you would think that if you could read somebody's face that you could get a glimpse into what's really going on in their head. Well, the, the reason it's so inaccurate is that because we master how to fake how we really feel. From a very young age, we're constantly being told not to make that face, not to, uh, you know, not to offend people uh, facially. And, uh, you know, we're told, don't roll your eyes, don't, uh, don't do this, don't do that. And yet, uh, other parts of our body, for instance, young children, when they're asked to kiss a relative and they don't like that relative, they may put on a, a smile, but their feet won't go anywhere near that relative. They'll bend at the waist to, uh, to initiate the kiss. And the feet are actually the most uh, accurate. The face is the least accurate. Really? The feet are the most accurate? Absolutely. They're responsible for our survival. So when you're at an ATM machine and somebody gets behind you too close, you may turn around and give like a uh, false smile, but your feet tighten up, the muscles get ready to run, and they will actually maneuver themselves so that they can escape. So far we've been talking about what to consciously look for in people's body language and their nonverbal communication. But Don't we also do this unconsciously? Don't humans just naturally have some ability to read people? Well, our our species, uh, per se, does uh, assess us for danger first, and then assess us for hierarchy second, and then we look for other things like emotions and and so forth. But we do this uh, in real time, um, subconsciously. And that's why sometimes uh, we'll be in a room with someone and they make us really uncomfortable. And it may be because they're a predator and uh, our brains are detecting the fact that this person may be a threat or, uh, or may uh, seek to harm us. Well, and I, I think that happens with everybody. Everybody probably has had that experience of the elevator door opens up and you're about to get in, but there's somebody in there that kind of gives you the creeps and you wait for the next elevator. Something's telling you that there's a threat there. Oh, no, absolutely. That's it. That's what Gavin DeBecker was talking about in his book, The Gift of Fear that our limbic brain, this very elegant part of our brain, is designed to preserve us. And it detects danger, and we have to listen to it. And, you know, as I tell uh, my students, you don't have a social obligation to be a victim. If you don't feel comfortable on a date, getting into a car, getting into an elevator, just get out, because your brain is actually communicating to you that something's wrong. But what so often happens, in fact, most of the time what happens is, that elevator door opens up, that guy in there gives you the creeps, you get in anyway, and nothing happens. That's true. And yet our brain is designed to, uh, to defend us, and, uh, and uh, we shouldn't be turning it off. You know, just because, uh, just because we don't have an accident every day doesn't mean we turn off the uh, airbags in our car. Um, our limbic brain is designed for, to assess for danger. For instance, predators 
social predators stare at us longer than the average person, that we react to that is absolute. It makes us uncomfortable. Uh, we should never turn that off, ever. In terms of lying, in terms of being deceptive, when you're working in law enforcement and you see somebody say something and their body language contradicts what they're saying, what do you do? Do you assume they're lying? Well, I never make the assumption that they're lying. What The assumption that I make is that for some reason they're saying something contrary to what they're really thinking or feeling. And there must be a reason for it. I mean, I, when my daughter was young and she would come home and I could tell that she was having a bad day, but she would say, no, everything's all right. Um, there's any number of reasons why she would do that, including the fact that maybe she just doesn't want to talk. Um, you know, that, that uh, it was a small lie on her part. Um, we, we tell lies all the time. I mean, you know, you walk past somebody and say, how's your day? And they say, well, everything's fine, and it's not. So it's, it's, it's a matter of, you know, what's the purpose of it? If it's to economize time and conversation, um, then it has another purpose other than just to, uh, to deceive. So based on what you're saying, I mean, we really need to pay attention to those feelings we get, those, those clues that we see that are nonverbal but speak volumes. For millions of years, our species communicated nonverbally. We continue to communicate nonverbally that nonverbals are more accurate. In fact, they're so accurate that, for instance, uh, when we see something we don't like, we tend to cover our eyes or we hear something we don't like. If I said, hey, Mike, help me move this weekend, you might just cover your eyes with your fingers. Now, here's what's interesting. Children who have been born blind, they've never seen, will also cover their eyes when they hear something they don't like. This is ingrained in us. And clearly, when you listen to what all those years of evolution are telling you, and when you understand what these things mean, that, for example, the feet are more accurate than the face in terms of reading somebody's intentions. I mean, this is really powerful stuff and can improve the way you communicate with other people. Joe Navarro has been my guest. He was a special agent for the FBI for 25 years, and he's author of the book, What Everybody is Saying. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Joe. Over the years, brands have used taglines. Some of them are very memorable, but many of them are not. Depending on how old you are, you might remember the tagline for McDonald's, you deserve a break today. But do you know what their tagline is today? Coca-Cola has had some great taglines like, it's the real thing, Coke adds life, or a Coke and a smile. But do you know what the Coca-Cola tagline is today? They have one but nobody really remembers it. Same with FedEx. Remember FedEx when it absolutely, positively has to get there overnight? Well, that got retired a while ago, but you ask anybody today, what's the FedEx tagline? And nobody knows it. By the way, the FedEx tagline today is the world on time. The Coca-Cola tagline today is taste the feeling. And the McDonald's tagline today is I'm loving it. But creating corporate brand taglines seems to have become a lost art, and one that marketing executive Steve Cohn wrote about in his book, Power Lines, words that sell brands, grip fans, and sometimes change history. Hi, Steve. So why the interest in taglines? I've noticed a complete 
kind of collapse in marketing over the past decade of attention to creating taglines, slogans, mottos, and jingles that have any relevance to consumers and uh, or or make any impact. And while there was a tremendous amount of successful campaigns done in the from the 50s through the through the 80s and even the early 90s, today very few break through. Uh, and it's because lack of attention to the importance of a few words to sell a brand. But don't you think it's also partly because we are exposed to so many more messages, advertising messages today, that it's hard for anything to break through, even the best of taglines uh, struggle? Simple answer, no. And I can give you a very good example. When a line breaks through the clutter out there, it's because it's a claim or a promise that is distinctive, unique, and gets people to nod in unison going, yeah, that's right. And a couple of quick examples. I mean, the city of Las Vegas, which launched, you know, had no tagline anyone knew. They hired a local writer who came up with um, a tagline that now every American over the age of 12 knows, which is, um, well, what the people say the line is, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The actual line is, Las Vegas, what happens here stays here, but your mind actually remembers it in an easier, digestible form. So it, I don't buy the argument that it's too much clutter out there for um, lines to get traction. The fact is that most companies do two things of any size, do two things very poorly today. They change their taglines all the time, maybe partly because they don't mean anything. And they just use generalities, you know, stick a few words together that could describe anything and therefore nothing, like aim higher or the passion to perform or the word life is very popular, you know, live your life, which is actually a line somebody uses. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember a life one. It, what was it? Um, life takes visa. Yeah, life doesn't take visa. Merchants take visa. I mean, uh, American Express, my life, my card, uh, Coke, the Coke side of life. But, but maybe it's just because they're taglines. They're, by definition, afterthoughts. They're not the name of the company. They're just a... A tagline. I mean, what do you want them to do? <laughs> You're asking a lot. They're just a tagline. Well, right. I think people uh, think that, and they don't remember that all the great taglines of yesteryear were, were both taglines and headlines. They were the line. <clears throat> so maybe the implication of the word itself, tagline, today makes marketers think about how, well, maybe that's kind of an, uh, an apostrophe I should put at the end, but nothing could be further from the truth. So what are some of these great taglines that you seem to be pining for from, from yesteryear? What are some of them? Well, some of them are still around. A Diamond is Forever was written by a 28-year-old female copywriter in 1948 for De Beers and their first diamond promotion. And guess what? That line will never change. BMW latched upon the ultimate driving machine. And guess what? It's the only tagline in the automotive world that anyone recalls today. By a wide, you know, there's a couple other lines that aren't bad that a few people will remember unaided, like Zoom, Zoom, Zoom for Mazda. At least it has some oomph to it. And like a rock for Chevy trucks. So that's one industry. Coca-Cola had a great line created in 1941. It's the real thing. And they've been fooling around ever since. No one today knows what their line is, which only if only the four tagline experts on the planet, me and three other people, know what the line is. <laughs> Wait, there's there's four of you? Yeah, well, I'm just guessing. You know, Pepsi had come alive. You're in the Pepsi generation. M&M still uses a line created back in the 50s. The milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand. 
I remember a tagline from a while back that seems to contradict what you're saying, because you're saying that, that a lot of taglines today don't say anything. They're kind of bland and boring, and they don't really have any meaning. But I remember the American Airlines tagline from years ago, we're American Airlines doing what we do best. It doesn't really say anything. What, is, what do you think? I, th- I think it was very, very well done. It says that they're focused on providing a good uh, flying experience. And remember United, I mean, what, what better tagline, fly the friendly skies? I mean, that, that still sticks in people's mind, and I don't think they've used that for years. Well, they used it for many years. They put it to music, very methodical. Both those lines were um, put to music and, and with a particular sound signature, if you will, which is the easiest. Uh, sound is much more easy uh, to retain in the mind than sight. Uh, hearing something is much more powerful than seeing something. Part of the problem today is people don't speak the lines. They just show them on TV or print and then expect people to remember them. And if they're not the headlines, they're sure as heck not going to remember them. Of course, you'll, you'll recall, where's the beef, right? It's the insurance companies, believe it or not, a boring industry, but great lines that they've kept for decades. Uh, Allstate, with, you're in good hands with Allstate. State Farm, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Geico uses, if you give us uh, 15 minutes, you could save 15%. Morton Salt, since 1911, when it rains, it pours. Hebrew National Hot Dogs, we answer to a higher authority. (laughs) That's one I particularly like. I wonder if what's going on in the cases where great taglines get retired is that, you know, new people come in and they look at those taglines and they think they're tired. And, you know, we're the new marketing people and we've got new, fresh ideas and we need to get rid of these old ideas, so we're going to retire that, because it's, it's just tired. Yes, they think that, and they, they're wrong. <clears throat> you know, if you look at all the companies that have great brand success who have stuck with their lines, I mentioned the Beers, I mentioned BMW, you know, there are plenty of others, because they understand that uh, these lines are the ultimate brand promise. Th- those are the lines people remember. People remember uh, for American Express, don't leave home without it. It hasn't been used in decades. They have no clue what American Express stands for today from a, lot, you know, from a tagline standpoint. Not a clue. And they've spent millions of dollars. And what people remember is don't leave home without it. So in other words, uh, lines don't get tired. What gets tired are, is the advertising itself around the line. But of the, the taglines that stick around and that people remember... And, and maybe even taglines that don't stick around, but people still remember them anyway, like the American Express, don't leave home without it. Which is the cart and which is the horse? Meaning, do these taglines stick around because they're good? Or are they good because they just stuck around so long? I, I would say most of the reason they've hung around is because you can't describe the product, service, or company any better. You can try and try all you want, and you just can't describe it any better. Can you predict the success of a tagline in advance? I mean, clearly no one's sitting around trying to come up with lousy taglines. Everybody thinks that this, this is a pretty good tagline, but there are a few, you know, fly the friendly skies or you deserve a break today that, that really stick. So is it just chance? Well, it, it's an art, not a science. If you're looking for some kind of magic formula, I give, a for, I give as much of a formula as I can in terms of, you know, you've got to create something that has an edge to it, that has a personality, that has an attitude, 
state your claim in an original way. Your tagline should state your positioning in a way that no one has done before. Uh, Wordplay, you know, play on words is very good. Totally avoid platitudes that could appeal to any business or apply to any business and therefore no business. You know, make sure your line can answer the question, what will your product or service specifically do for me? Federal Express, when it absolutely positively has to get there overnight. That's how they started. That's what they used for the first 15 years. No one, of course, knows what their line is today, but they still remember that. So a great line will, will remain whether you use it or not. And I see that over and over and over again as you, can, as you can surmise yourself just by thinking about the topic. You know what I wonder is why, if, if a company has retired a tagline and tried 5, 10, 15 other taglines and none of them stick, why don't they go back? Why doesn't Coke become the real thing again? Why doesn't United fly the friendly skies or American Airlines do what they do best? I mean, why don't they admit defeat and go back to success? They're embarrassed, and they don't want to admit that all the marketing and zillions of dollars they've spent since that time have gone for naught. But I can give a talk, which I do, for instance, in Atlanta, Georgia, on this topic, and go, does anyone know what Coke's tagline is today? And it's, it's like, uh, no, is the answer. No one has a clue. One of the great, successful, now-retired taglines was Verizon's Can You Hear Me Now? And I know in your book that you talk about not having a tagline that focuses on a negative. And clearly that does. That shines a spotlight on the fact that cell phones drop out and you can't hear people. So how do you reconcile the success of that with your theory that negative is not good? Um, I've changed my mind on that one. I will say it, it's a line that, that while is is the only one remembered in the in the mobile phone category. It also has a very high negative rating. But at the end of the day, people remember it. As interesting as this topic is, and, and as fun as it is to look down memory lane at some of the great taglines, how do you know this really matters? How do you know that a tagline is worth all the effort you're talking about? How do you know that it really contributes to the bottom line? The best you can do is look at companies that have kept their lines for years and look at where they are in their industry. And the vast majority of the time, they're on top. The vast majority of the time, they're on top. And, the vast, and I'd say a lot of the time when, uh, when they've changed the line one or a zillion times, they're struggling with the rest of the folks. Another tagline that seems very successful but defies the rules that you've been pointing out here is Nike's, just do it. I mean, it doesn't tell you anything about what Nike does. It doesn't differentiate Nike in any way from its competitors. It doesn't really mean anything. Just do it. Just do what? <laughs> I mean, and yet everybody knows just do it. Well, it, they always have their name, of course, with the line, right? And you're right. But, but they used a lot of advertising and continue to, 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 to the earlier point. You can take a so-so line and, and make it your signature, if you keep at it, and in this case, it works for them, I think, because they're not, pedal, they're not hardcore peddling their products, and people appreciate that. They're saying, basically, you can be a better person, a healthier person, a more active person. It's up to you. And, oh, by the way, we have, um, we have the equipment and the apparel and, and uh, 
the ability to provide great product for you to use. You know, the, the military is pretty interesting when it comes to taglines. I mean, the Marines, the few, the proud, the Marines, that's been around forever and people know that. But the Army, the U.S. Army has, has struggled with taglines. Uh, the Army had a great slogan, which worked for 20 years, be all you can be. And it was perfect for the post-Vietnam era and for getting people excited again about a military career, men and women and their parents. And then what do they do? They throw that out and they go with uh, Army of One. Huh? What the heck does that mean? Crazy. And then they went from, then, then they decided, well, yeah, you're right, that is crazy. So now they're using Army Strong, which does nothing to really get the juices flowing. Strong's not a bad word, but it just, what does that mean? So as we wrap things up here, take us on a little stroll down memory lane here. Some of the really great, in your view, really great taglines and, and why. My former employer, uh, I worked at twice, uh, City, City Group. They had a line that employees loved that epitomized the heritage of City to a T that applies to every business under the city umbrella and everywhere in the world was translated easily, which was the city never sleeps. And they got rid of that line back in uh, 1998. And it's one of the best lines actually, in my opinion, ever created, certainly in the financial services space, because it's a genuine representation of the distinctiveness of that brand versus all of its competitors. No one else has the global breadth and on-the-ground presence of city. Why would Allstate ever change? You're in good hands with Allstate. You know, there are a lot of other examples of folks that, that just stick to their knitting and do a great job. They don't get a lot of recognition. Raid, kill bugs dead. <laughs> Rotor-rooter, right? Away goes troubles down the drain. Rotor-rooter. Sher- uh, Sherwin-Williams, cover the earth. Um, an odd phrase, but makes the point that you can paint anything at any time with our paint. Some of the national service um, slogans have stayed. You can learn a lot from a dummy, buckle up. You know, obviously for 50 years only you can prevent forest fires. A mine is a terrible thing to waste. Uh, is still used, and they still call themselves the United Negro College Fund. Transportation, they, you know, there were some great lines in the past. Fly the Friendly Skies of United, uh, they really tried to epitomize that. Maybe they, they, they've decided, maybe in this case, they decided they really can't <laughs> provide friendly service. Greyhound bus lines, lead the driving to us. A clear benefit, easy to remember, used and used and used. Well, there clearly are some great ones, and it does seem that most of them are from that golden age of taglines and slogans. There aren't a lot of new ones that really pop into my head as being really, really memorable. And I suspect it, it really has to do with the idea that maybe it just people don't think they matter that much anymore. And yet here we are talking about them and pining away for the old ones. So maybe they really do matter. Steve Cohn is my guest, and his book is Power Lines, Words That Sell Brands, Grip Fans, and Sometimes Change History. There's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Steve. There are a lot of reasons and contributing factors why people are overweight. But one of the simple reasons people are overweight seems to be that when we see food, we eat food. 
Over 200 American kitchens were photographed to determine if the food sitting out on the counter was related to the body weight of the woman living in the house. What the researchers at Cornell University discovered was women who had breakfast cereal sitting on their counters weighed 20 pounds more than those who did not. Those who had soft drinks sitting out on their counters weighed 24 to 26 pounds more. Those who only had a fruit bowl on the counter weighed about 13 pounds less. The conclusion is that when food is out and visible, we're more likely to eat it. So the advice is to keep a fruit bowl on the counter and put everything else away where you can't see it. And that is something you should know. If you enjoy the podcast, I hope you will support it by doing business with our advertisers. They are great companies. Uh, I've talked to virtually every single one of them. If what they have to offer sounds interesting to you, I hope you will check them out. All of the links and promo codes that you hear in the commercials are in the show notes for each episode. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.